Today we'll be in Acts chapter 14, so if you have your Bibles, phones, turn to Acts chapter 14. We'll be going through verses 8 and 26. Uh, last week, Pastor Rafe, um, who is not here with us today, he's, his family is enjoying a, a nice vacation, uh, they'll be back tomorrow, uh, but Pastor Rafe last week, he shared about Paul and Barnabas, who were the first gospel workers who were sent on mission to reach people who did not yet know who God was and to proclaim the gospel throughout the Mediterranean, uh, Mediterranean region. And you can see their journey on the map behind me. They first head to the island of Cyprus, then to Perga, then to Antioch and, and Pisida, and then to Iconium, proclaiming the gospel in each city and making disciples while they're there. And then as we get to chapter 14, our context we're going to hear a little bit more about their journey and also kind of the end part of their journey. And so before I jump in, I'm going to read our text throughout the sermon. Before I dig in, though, let me pray and ask God's blessing for this time. Heavenly Father, we come before you um, underneath your word, God, knowing that your word speaks truth and love to us. And I pray, oh God, that for our hearts, even my own heart, God, that you would prepare good soil that we would hear your word, that we not just be hearers of it, but also doers of your word, that it would speak truth, and that whatever I have to say, God, that if it's not from you, I pray that it would be quickly forgotten, but whatever is of you, God, that may it stick and dig roots into our hearts, changing us, transforming us by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let me start with a question. What do you think is the longest lasting and most reliable car, all right? What do you think is the longest lasting and most reliable car? Just, you know, we're a church here, so shout it out. Anyone have any guesses? Camry, minivan, Volvos, no one on this side. It's all good, it's all good. There's a lot of choices, all right? Now, um, this is debatable, but in a, two, in a 2020 study analyzing over 11.8 million cars sold, they looked at which models had the highest percentage of cars reaching over 200,000 miles. And it wasn't the Honda Accord or the Toyota Camry or the Ford Expedition, but it was the Toyota Land Cruiser. Toyota Land Cruiser? Well, it's, uh, you see a picture behind me. The Land Cruiser is one of the most reliable and indestructible cars in the past 25 years. Many of them are used to drive in the harshest driving conditions and are heavily relied upon in developing countries where off-road is often the norm. And if you go to the next slide, you'll see that out of the 10 cars that they researched that had the highest percentage, six of them are Toyotas. And even in a separate report done by J.D. Power, a really well-known research firm, they named the Lexus ES sedan, which is uh, similar to the Toyota Avalon, as the world's most reliable car. And if you didn't know, Toyota owns Lexus. So the question is, why is Toyota so reliable? What sustains Toyota cars for the long haul? There are several reasons, but one that sticks out consistently in reports about Toyota is how they care more about function than form. For example, they care more about the functionality of the engine and parts rather than how much horsepower you'll get or how fast the car will go. Or they care more about the safety and durability of the car rather than how cool and slick the car looks. Or they care more about the reliability of the car long term rather than adding all the new tech and features into the car. 
Now, my goal here today is not to convince you to buy a Toyota, okay? I'm also not a car expert, so just please don't come and talk to me about cars, okay? I just, I did this in like 30 minutes of research, okay? But it's to ask you this important question. Are we, as the church, seeking to be long-lasting and reliable as well? Are we as the church seeking to be long-lasting and reliable as well? Are we, Park Community Church South Loop, seeking to be more like a Toyota or more like a Saturn, which was so unreliable they actually shut down productions about 10 years ago? Well, from our text, I believe that as we look at the example of Paul and Barnabas, we can take away three requirements for the church to sustain a gospel movement. Let's just dive in here, all right? Number one, sustaining gospel movement requires God glorifiers and not people pleasers. God glorifiers and not people pleasers. Let's start in verse 8 through 10. Verse 8, now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. Now, Lystra was a small country town, a small population, probably uneducated. But as Paul is speaking to them for the first time, he sees this crippled man in a distance with faith, and he looks intently at him. Literally, it means he like locked eyes with that person. And then he shouts, stand upright. And the man doesn't just gingerly get up. He must have got some Holy Spirit hops here because the text said he sprung up and he walked. Now, Luke, the writer of Acts, he doesn't say directly who this power is from, but we've already read through countless stories in Acts of how the apostles are used as conduits of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's power to heal many people throughout their ministry. So obviously, this man was healed because of God's power. So then how do the crowds react? Well, let's continue on in verse 11 and 13. It says, And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. Now, if you studied your Greek mythology, you know, Zeus was the chief of all gods in their, in their belief, the god of thunder, and Hermes was the messenger of the gods. And the reason why they thought that Paul and Barnabas were gods in human form was because of most likely an ancient legend written during this time. And the story goes that Zeus and Hermes came down to a hill country, very much like Lystra, disguised as mortals, seeking lodging. Though they asked a thousand homes if they could get some help, not a single one took them in. Finally, at a humble cottage of straw and reeds, a poor elder couple, elderly couple freely welcomes them and gives them out of their poor means of what they had. And in appreciation, Zeus and Hermes bless them, but for the 1,000 inhospitable homes, they are destroyed by a flood. So knowing that this myth is in the back of their minds, 
the people of Lystra, they came and they bring oxen and garlands. And oxen were most likely used as sacrifices so they can sacrifice to them and also have a great feast. And then garlands or reeds would then be put on Paul and Barnabas as an acknowledgement that they are deity. But as soon as Paul and Barnabas understood what was going on, they say this in verse 14, or they do this in verse 14. They, in verse 14, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd crying out, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Paul and Barnabas are so quick to respond that they tear their garments, a symbol of protest of the people's blasphemy or their offense against God. They wanted the people to know that they were not gods, but only messengers from God and stewards of God's power. Now, this may be a classic story of misunderstanding, but I believe there is a deeper lesson for us as a church. At this moment, Paul and Barnabas had a choice. I know it might seem a little bit odd, but they could have easily chosen to accept the praise of the people. I mean, it would have been a lot easier. Remember, they are coming from a long journey, probably sleeping on the cold ground, barely having enough food to eat. But now, Paul and Barnabas are welcomed and respected. They have a nice warm meal. They have beef for for goodness sake, a comfortable place to lay their head, and they could have whatever they wanted from these people. And then after they're full and well-rested, then they can tell the gospel correctly to these people. But instead, they don't. Church, the question that is asked from us of this story is do we seek the praise of people more than the glory of God? Do we seek the praise of people more than the glory of our God? On a personal level, I bet every single one of us wrestles with this in some kind of way. To earn the praise of others, we've changed the way we work, the title we get, the lifestyle we display, the way we dress, the way we talk, the way we even portray ourselves online and more. But even more sadly, as we talk more about the church, This also changes the way many have done ministry or church. Sadly, there have been churches who have twisted their views on biblical truth by aligning more properly to a certain political party or to a certain culture. Sadly, there have been churches who have changed who they minister to by catering to those with deep pockets and power influences rather than serving the poor and the weak. Sadly, there have been churches who have abandoned worshiping an audience of one who is God himself to worshiping a certain leader or a certain brand or a certain community or church. Why? Why do we want to please people? Why does the church fall into this temptation? Because we want the glory for ourselves. We want a little bit of that glory. We want a taste of glory. We want the praise and the likes. It feels good. It feels like we feel important. We feel better than others. We think our lives matter than other people. But do you know what's ironic about wanting glory for ourselves? Who gives you breath in your lungs? God. Who gave you your talents, your skills, your jobs, your resources? God. Who gave you your looks, your accomplishments, your titles, your family, your friends? God. 
If every single thing has been given to us by God, do we really deserve the glory? You might have worked hard and persevered, and you should be affirmed in this for sure, but you do not receive the glory for those results. All glory belongs to God alone. As Isaiah 42, 8 recalls, God says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols or even to other people. So for Paul and Barnabas, I bet they were also tempted to sneak a little glory for themselves. I mean, they were the first missionaries here. They were the first church planters. They were the first to reach many people with the gospel. But they didn't even want to flirt with this temptation. So they ran away from it, even tearing their clothes to make it ultra clear. We are not God. Do not worship us. Church, sustaining a gospel movement can never happen if our goal begins to win the approval of other people. To be honest, if we do, our churches will wither and die. Chicago has many churches that have not lasted past five or ten years because of this very reason. People are fickle, but God is eternal. So if we desire to sustain a gospel movement, we must always, without a doubt, give the honor and glory first to God who gives all things. We must seek his will, seek his word, seek his ways for our church. That's the first requirement. The second one, let me continue on. The second requirement is that sustaining gospel movement requires perseverance amidst persecution. Perseverance amidst persecution. Let's go back to our text. In verse 15, we see Paul begins to preach to Lyconians to try and convince them to not treat him and Barnabas like gods. But as he starts preaching, it ends kind of weirdly in verse 17. It's only a few verses where he talks about how God is living and one, but then he makes no mention of Jesus Christ, which in almost all of his messages, he does. And in verse 18, we realize why. It says, even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. What's happening here? What's happening here is that Paul's message gets cut off. And as we keep reading in verse 19, it says, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. As Paul was trying to convince the Laconians to stop, Jews from Antioch and Iconium, which are the same cities that Paul and Barnabas had to flee because of persecution, somehow persuaded the crowds to not worship Paul, but to stone him. All because Paul proclaimed a message that was different and contrary to the lifestyle and belief of the hearers. Essentially, essentially, they wanted to get rid of Paul because they did not get what they wanted. They expected to be blessed. They wanted for Paul to bless them with all these things. But Paul was telling them that they were worshiping the wrong God. How dare he say that to them? So they dragged him and they stoned him. And to be clear, the process of stoning is not just to hurt somebody. It has every intention to execute them. So to see Paul here alive, it's quite amazing. It's a true miracle. 
Paul even writes about this in his experience in the letter to the Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 11.25, recounting all the persecution he's went through. He says, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea. And so amidst all that, Paul gets up the next day, probably in great physical pain, and he travels to the next town with Barnabas. Talk about perseverance, right? And, you know, as I reflect on this story, it's, it's quite amazing just how quickly the tables have turned on Paul. You know, at one point, he was tempted to receive all praise and glory from the people. Then all of a sudden, it shifted, and now he is being persecuted and stoned by those same people. You know, I believe this kind of gives us a stark picture of how Satan even tries to tempt us. As I shared beforehand, the first temptation is for pride and people-pleasing to veer us away from the gospel, which Paul and Barnabas refuted quickly. But the second temptation is this temptation where persecution gets so overwhelming, and Paul and Barnabas, to the point where they just want to give up on the gospel. Now, I pretty much am sure that really not many of us, maybe even none of us, can relate to Paul's physical persecution. We are fortunate to live in a country where there is freedom of religion, where we are not oppressed or even killed for our faith in Jesus Christ. Now, we may go through opposition in, our, in this country, but not persecution, where many in the world are currently experiencing where their belief in Jesus Christ basically has a wanted sign for them if they believe in that in their country or city. However, though we can't understand Paul's physical persecution, we can probably identify with how he is emotionally or mentally feeling. You know, for me, and I'm guessing for many of you, this year has been a year, or this past year and a half really, a year of disappointment. You know, one incident that happened earlier, and for those who are part of our church planting community, you know this story because I've already told you, um, was that about four to six months ago, as we are um, planting a church in the Hyde Park neighborhood, a really important part is to find a building or a space to meet in. Now, as the lead pastor of this plant, we had this beautiful space already kind of having conversations with the building and having all these people. We had Pastor Rafe and Kenson come and pray over it. Our leaders come through. We made sure that it was going to be an amazing space to be for our children's music, children's ministry, um, aesthetically pleasing, and it checked every single box we wanted to have an amazing Sunday gathering time. But then just last, about two or three weeks ago, one conversation just completely wiped that whole dream out. And the place pulled out of the deal. Now, I have some guesses to why that happened, but in full reality, I, I don't know what exactly happened and why they didn't want us to use that space. Now, my situation is nowhere as life-threatening to pause, but I definitely had the same questions and feelings he was probably wrestling with. Why, God? Why are you doing this right now? We're trying so hard to fulfill your gospel movement. Why is it so difficult? I don't feel like keep going. Is it worth to continue on in this movement? I'm feeling depressed. I'm feeling worried, frustrated, disappointed. And I'm sure many of you have asked those same questions throughout this past year. And obviously, as I've already stated, my initial thought was, Noah, just persevere. You're a good Christian. Be a good pastor. Just persevere. 
church planting isn't for the weak. It isn't for those who cry or pout. You just got to keep going like Paul and be a Marine or something like that. And I felt this temptation to just bury my emotions and my disappointments and questions and just move on. But as I was in my counseling session, and yes, pastors get counseling too, my counselor told me what, and explained to me that as I was explaining the disappointment to her, that she told me it's not persevering, Noah. You're not persevering in actuality. But what you're doing is you're just pushing through a harsh reality without accepting the real pain and sorrow of your circumstances. She continued to say, you won't be able to persevere through any hardships unless you actually work on accepting and expressing your disappointments and hardships to yourself and to others. And church, I share all this because when I say we must persevere amidst persecution or persevere amidst disappointments or hardships, I don't want you to just lock up all your emotions, your pains and your questions in the closet, lock it up and throw the key away and keep pressing on. That's not what perseverance is about. I believe in perseverance, we need to embrace those hardships, to wrestle with them, bring them to God, seek help and ask our brothers and sisters in Christ to encourage and support us so that we can persevere together. Perseverance isn't pushing through our emotions, it's learning to embrace them while we lean on God and others to continue on. One step at a time. And as we look at our story, I I believe Paul did this too. If you look at the map again, Paul travels to Derby, which is 60 miles from Lystra, with Barnabas. He goes with Barnabas. Do you remember what Barnabas' name means in Greek? You got it. Son of encouragement. I can't imagine, but... Barnabas, encouraging, counseling, walking with Paul as he's going through this difficult experience over that week-long journey, and through all the disappointments and persecutions they faced, I imagine Barnabas being the main reason why they can persevere together. We all need some Barnabases in our lives. And church, God reminds us in his word that if we persevere with others, that perseverance produces something good. James 1, 2-4 reminds us, like many other parts in Scripture, it says, Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So for Paul, even the greatest persecution or disappointments would not deter him from fulfilling the mission God had given him. He keeps going. And as we see, when he reaches Derby, we read in verse 21, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples. He finds much success and fruit in Derby. And the gospel movement is sustained and even grows amidst persecution and disappointment. You know, on a related note, um, you know, this past Saturday, we as a country celebrated Juneteenth. And this is why, as a community and a church, we remember and celebrate Juneteenth alongside our black brothers and sisters. If there is any story of perseverance amidst persecution in our country, it's the countless generations of African Americans who have persevered amidst the unjust persecution and struggle they endured. 
You know, I don't have time or I don't even know the amount of the stories or uh, the history and the lessons of the sufferings and hardships that are there, which I encourage many of us to, to read and to learn about. And we also know, too, that Juneteenth marked the time where, it, you know, oppression and difficulty didn't end there. It continued on with different forms of oppression like sharecropping and redlining and Jim Crow laws. But what I do believe in light of this historical day that happened yesterday, that as a church from many backgrounds throughout the city and even the world, we can learn much from our black brothers and sisters and the black church on what it means to persevere, what it means to lament, what it means to encourage those who are suffering hardships, and even what it means to truly celebrate. Which leads me to my last requirement. Sustaining gospel movement requires support, rest, and celebration. Support, rest, and celebration. Now, what's interesting is that Derby becomes the last city Paul and Barnabas make disciples in. Because after Derby, they, they backtrack. They go back to Lystra and all the other cities they visited. And in verse 22, we see why they did this. They were strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in their faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. <clears throat> While going back to these four cities, Paul and Barnabas did three things. They strengthened their souls, literally building them up in teaching and instruction. Number two, they encouraged in their faith, very similar to what Barnabas was doing with Paul. They encouraged them amidst the difficulty of being Christians in their cities. And number three, they established elders or leaders to teach and shepherd these newly found Christian communities when Paul and Barnabas had to leave them. So these would be the newfound leaders to guide and lead the church. And if we look at the map again, okay, there's a lot of the map here, but if you look at the map again, we see that this task must have been extremely important for Paul and Barnabas. Because if you notice the purple arrow there, Derby was not that far from Antioch, Syria, which was their home base on which they were sent. Their journey would have been at least five times shorter if they went back, the, if they went back uh, east to Antioch, where they could have gone home, rested, and, and whatnot. But they chose to go back the long way to visit all the other churches to encourage them, to support them, and to raise up elders. And Paul, even in his future missionary journeys, visits some of these churches as well. Gospel movement is only sustained when the church supports one another, but also when it rests and celebrates. And so as we see and finish up our chapter here, Paul and Barnabas get back to Antioch, a, a very long journey back. And in verse 27, we read, And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. For Paul and Barnabas, they wanted to share and celebrate all that God had been doing to those who they had been sent to. And, and for those who prayed for them, for those who loved them, they share their ups and downs, the miracles, the new churches, and even the persecution. And in every report, as Luke reminds us in verse 27, they declared all that God had done with them, 
Remember the first requirement. They gave every single ounce of glory to God who gave the fruit, who God opened the doors of faith, who God continued to sustain them and even work in those cities after Paul and Barnabas left. So they celebrated together as the body in Antioch. And verse 28 is so sweet to read. And they remained no little time with the disciples. In other words, they rested. Probably not just for a few days or a few weeks, but at least a few months or maybe a a year until they would go back out again to do more gospel work. You know, as audacious and entrepreneurial Paul and Barnabas were to be the first workers sent on mission, they both recognized that as much as making new disciples and planting new churches are important, sustaining them was even more important. It was evangelism, super important, but also long-term discipleship. It was baptisms, amazing stories, and also long-term shepherding and care. It was planting new ministries and new churches and encouraging and supporting them so that those churches could outlast the leaders that planted them. And lastly, it's also finding regular rhythms of rest, Sabbath rest, to celebrate and to appreciate all that God had done. Remember, it's not Paul who and Barnabas who did this. It was God who gave the fruit. Not overworking ourselves so that we end up burning out or wanting to quit, but trusting that this is ultimately God's church and God's work. And if we, Park Community South Loop, want to flourish, we must deeply care about the long game. We don't want to be one of those churches that lasts like a flash in a pan, five or ten years. But we want to last beyond my life, Pastor Rafe's lives, any of our lives here, so that our impact would outlast and be in this neighborhood, in Chicago, and throughout the world, so that God can get the most glory and praise because he deserves it. So we must take this balanced approach. And Paul and Barnabas remind us of that in this narrative. But in the end, church, we have these three requirements. Plus, there are many more if you look in the book of Acts. And they are vital to sustain a gospel movement. Yet, if Park Community Church modeled these requirements perfectly by ourselves, we actually won't make it. If we just do all of these perfectly, we won't sustain a gospel movement. The only way our church will be reliable and long-lasting, like a Toyota Land Cruiser, is if there's fuel in the tank. And the fuel, since the beginning of the church's inception, is the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. From the moment Jesus came to earth, even before when creation began, the Spirit was present. And when Jesus came, the Holy Spirit empowered his life and ministry. And while Jesus was crucified on the cross because of our sin that put him there, the only way Jesus could resurrect on that third day was when the Holy Spirit empowered him to give him life so that he could have resurrected power 
And we as the church have that same power and presence if we believe in Jesus Christ. And though we call this book of Acts the Acts of the Apostle, we know that the main character, the main mover and shaker of the early church and today and throughout all history is the Holy Spirit moving in power and in his presence. Because without the Spirit, there is no fuel in our tank and we will all be lost and we will all die. The Spirit is the one that moves the church, and we must recognize that because without the Spirit, we can do nothing. You know, in a recent Christianity Today article uh, titled, The American Church is a Mess, but I'm Still Hopeful, um, Tish Harrison Warner, uh, Warren comments how in the past couple of years, the church uh, in America has seen many leadership failures, sexual abuse, overt racism, power hunger, division, and a whole lot of brokenness. Um, And it's been really difficult to read. And then she comments on which has led to many people leaving the Christian faith or leaving the church. And so she's asked in this article, what should the church do? And she writes, it's easy to double down on strategy. We need better programs, better discipleship, and better training of pastors. We need more money to plant churches and start healthier institutions. We need more Christian magazines, Christian schools, and ministries to the poor and marginalized. We need better essays, columns, and books. We need better leaders, better catechists, and better political theology. All of this is true. But in the end, I am not confident that we can drum up a solution. Each year, the problems seem more complex, and the darkness within our institutions seems more distressing. But I believe in the Holy Spirit. Because of this, I believe that God is far more invested in purifying and strengthening his church than I am. I therefore live in the full knowledge that I cannot predict the future. I can't even take a guess. And she finishes her article by saying this. It's not a strategy, a new book, a new political candidate, or a new initiative. The Holy Spirit is at work. That is enough for me today. Church, the Spirit of God is on the move and working far more than we can picture or imagine. We have requirements. Yes, we have requirements to be faithful to, like the three ones that I mentioned today. But the Spirit is fueling and sustaining the gospel movement with us or without us. And let me just finish with this, church. You know, as summer is approaching, uh, it's amazing to look at the lake and see all the, the boats and the people out on the beach and on the water. And... You know, out of the many boats on the lake, I've always been fascinated with sailboats. Now, I've never ridden one or I'm an expert on one. And the last time I was on the lake was not a fun experience because I had really, really bad motion sickness. But the concept of having to trust the winds to guide you on the waters is quite a remarkable thing. Now, um, it's interesting because I feel like there's a picture in there of the church and of the Holy Spirit. In Hebrew and Greek, the original language of our scriptures, the word for wind and spirit, if you you don't know, is actually the same word. In Hebrew, it's raha, and then in uh, Greek, it's pneuma. And what's amazing is that wind is that there's no one person or one institution that can contain it, whether it's a fresh breeze you need on a hot day or a massive hurricane that is extremely destructive. But as we've grown in our technology, we've become less dependent on wind. We've started to bypass our need for it. 
especially our boats here. We've created oars to paddle with, or we've created motors that can propel and guide us for long distances. And I think for us as a church, we may need to put down our oars or turn off our motors and start putting up our sails again and relying on the Spirit to direct, sustain, and empower us. Because eventually, our arms will get tired. Our motors will break down or run out of fuel. Or even worse, we may be going in the wrong direction. My prayer here, church, is that instead of trying to live and work and do ministry on our own strength or our own strategies, is that we practice trusting and relying on the Spirit even more to sustain a gospel movement in our lives, in this church, so that God would receive all the glory. Amen? Let me pray. God, we, man, God, we, we need you. Holy Spirit, we need you. We are so lost without you. God, I confess that as a church, even as a pastor myself, that I have been trying to row myself to your gospel plan and, and movement. And God, there have been many disappointments, many discouragements. I'm tired. Many of us are tired. And God, I pray, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would fall afresh on us. God, Holy Spirit, that you would renew us, that you would restore us, that you would sustain us and fuel us for the long haul so that, God, Jesus Christ, that you would receive all the glory and honor when anything good happens in our lives or in the church. So help us, I pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.